You are listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. Good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you. Some of you I've only seen from afar, like Tyler mentioned earlier. And it is so good to see you up close and personal, even if it's through a cloth mask. Uh, it is a blessing to be in the same place, worshiping the same Savior. And so I'm so glad that you're here with us, and I'm looking forward to our time together. As you saw on the screen just a moment ago, we are in this series called The Elephant in the Room. And last week, we covered a a very sensitive yet uh, needed topic. Today, we're going to do the same. I appreciate your prayers, as this one will be difficult for me personally. And so I ask you to pray for me as we go through our time together. And turn in your Bibles to Psalm 106, Psalm 106. We're going to be starting in verse 34. Before we do, I'll set it up, though, in the early verses. Uh, this psalm, as you're turning there, is a uh, psalm that's kind of a, a summation, a closer, if you will, to the fourth book of psalms. You may not have known that psalms are divided up into multiple books, but they are. And uh, this particular one kind of does a historical narrative of some big things in the life of Israel. And a lot of times in the Psalms, we see things that are celebratory. They are uh, praising about what's going on and and rejoicing. But this particular one, uh, a summation, is about a lot of the negative things that Israel did that they shouldn't have done in walking away from the Lord. The beginning starts off great, though. It sets the tone, and the end will set the tone, the same tone. They sandwich everything in these things. Look at the first couple of verses with me in uh, 106 verse 1. Praise the Lord. That is good news, right? Praise the Lord. It's giving thanksgiving to the Lord. For he is good, look at this, for his steadfast love endures forever. In this series, we're talking about hot-button topics, and they're oftentimes topics that we don't want to talk about, and they're not fun to talk about, but we can be assured that if we are in Christ, this covenant love, the steadfast love of God is ours today and tomorrow and the next day if we are in Christ. And so I want to encourage you with that as we begin. And let me jump on down to some of the hard stuff. We're going to be starting in verse 34 to 39. This is kind of the meat of where we're going to be. And just a reminder, in this series, we're not going to be unpacking one passage the entire time. And these topical kind of things, we're covering a lot of places that the Scripture talk about this one topic. I just believe the Holy Spirit had placed upon me to be in this place as our launching point and the thing we come back to over and over again. So let's look in Psalm 106, 34 through 39. Again, this is chastising Israel in these ways, so this is not good to be prepared. Uh, It will be a difficult day for us today in some ways. Let's look at Psalm 106, 34 on. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Let me pray for us. Father, we need you every moment of every day we need you. And even, Lord, right now, we need you to guide us through your word, to take us through this topic that is atrocious and is overwhelming and is 
horrendous, horrific even, Lord. And we know it is burdensome, Lord. But we want to know how to see things through the lens of the gospel. We want to know how to address things the right way. We want to know how to love people the way you love people. And we want to know how to find forgiveness and hope for the hopeless and for the hurting. Lord, help us this morning. We need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look at it again with me. Let's read this text again. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a stare to them. So they were giving up their worship of the one true God and worshiping the false gods of the nations that they were intermixing with. And it says in verse 37, they sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. And this is not figurative. This is literal. They were killing their sons and daughters as sacrifice, their children, to demons. And he restates it in a different way. This is a popular Hebrew way to do it. Uh, they will restate it for emphasis, and he states it a little differently so we get the picture. He says, they poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. So what, it, what the author's doing here for us is showing us that Israel is sacrificing literally their children on altars. It looks like maybe they are slitting their throats and bleeding them out and using that blood as part of the sacrifice from the language used here. They are sacrificing their children to idols, which he equates to the worship of demons. Okay? That this child murdering is de- demonology, is demon- demonic work. And he goes on and he says, the land was polluted with blood. That's how much it was happening. He says, thus they became unclean by their acts. And then God uses some really strong wording when he says, and they played the whore in their deeds. This is how he feels about that kind of worship of demons and false gods and idols, especially with something like sacrificing children. And I think, brothers and sisters... That we live in a time, we live in a time that is no different than the time that was just described in this psalm. I think that we live in a nation where this type of sacrifice is going on still. We live in a world surrounded with the murder of children that goes on unstopped, that goes on unchecked and even unthought of by most. And we are no better as a nation than the Israelites here. I'm going to give you some statistics about this kind of murder. It'll be a little bothersome for us. It is for me, for personal reasons, which we'll get to later on. But in 2019, over 42.3 million, 42.3 million abortions were reported worldwide. I say reported not including those that go unreported. Worldometer, which is a website that, that is an independent website that takes in all kinds of information from multiple sources that are good sources and puts them together. You can go there and find out what the coronavirus numbers are doing up to date there. Worldometer estimates that about 58.6 million deaths occurred worldwide in 2019, not including abortions. So 58.6 million deaths worldwide In addition to that, 42.3 million babies murdered in the womb. 
They rival each other, those numbers. Approximately 61 million children have been aborted in the U.S. since Roe versus Wade in 1973. Let's put that in perspective. The Holocaust took the lives of approximately six, six, just six million Jews. I say just, numbers beyond belief, six million Jews. But since Roe versus Wade, there have been over 61 million babies murdered. And just last year alone, there were over 620,000 children murdered in the womb in the United States of America, the land of the free. It's safe to say with these numbers that abortion is the leading cause of death in the U.S. and in the world. The leading cause. In fact, I would say, based off the passage we just read and other places in Scripture when you put them together, I would clarify, don't get hung up on my pause here, but abortion is an act of worship. Let me explain what I mean. Psalm 106, starting in verse 36. They served their idols. That's worshiping words. Which became a snare to them. They sacrificed. That's worship. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. That's worshiping demons through child sacrifice. They poured out innocent blood. That's what would happen. The Israelites would pour out blood on the altar for satisfying God's wrath. Here they're pouring out the blood of their own children to satisfy demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed, there it is again, to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Let me further that statement I made a minute ago. Abortion, this is kind of our thesis for today in the negative way of saying it. Abortion is the worship of self on the altar of convenience. Abortion is the worship of self on the altar of convenience. In other words, it's the murder of innocent children for the convenience of the biological mother or father. Now, you might say, well, some do it because they have been raped. I understand. It's still a choice to do so. And I would argue that biblically, no one is given the freedom to take the life of a child. In fact, Abortion is a direct assault on God's created order and his covenant with creation. Let me explain what I mean. Abortion is the profaning of God's glory. Why can I say that? How do I mean that? Abortion is the profaning of God's glory because children, all of us who have been children, who are children of God now, all of us are made in his image to reflect his glory. So to take the life of an unborn child before they are able to do what they're created to do is to profane the glory of God and to rob him of glory. And if you know anything about the Bible, God abhors anything that robs him of glory because he alone deserves glory. So I can say abortion profanes the glory of God. Genesis 1.28, before Adam and Eve fell into sin, First commandment to them, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. And that command has never gone away, even with the fall. Still commanded. Be fruitful. Not murder the fruit. Now sin messed that up. Some can't be fruitful. Some are extra fruitful. 
Some are barely fruitful after years. Some never are fruitful. It doesn't mean you're not being obedient if you can't have children. What it means, though, is that you're definitely not being obedient if you purposefully stop children from being born. That's the nicest way I can say it. I'll say it in a positive way here, what we should think, what should spur us on. Remember that song we grew up singing, Jesus Loves the Little Children, All the Children of the World, Red and Yellow, Black and White. That was last week's sermon, right? <laughs> they are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Well, I'm robbing from that song today, and I'm going to say it like this. Jesus loves all the little children, and so should we. Not just in not having abortions, but in doing what we can to stop abortions. See, being a Christian means that you don't just not do things. You actually do things to make sure the right things happen. It seems like an overwhelming thing when you talk about 40 million children murdered last year through abortion. There's a lot of objections we're going to talk about today. Here's one of the objections. Objection might be this. It's not a baby. It's not a life. We know that's not true, and scientifically we know it's not true. It is a life, and it's a life with a soul. It is a baby, even before the baby comes out of the womb. Some ways we know that. At conception, this child has DNA, its own DNA. If it's a girl, she has genetic markers and anomalies that only she could have. If it's a boy, he has blood type. might be like his dad's or his mom's, or it could be a mix of the two. But he has his own blood type. And between 8 weeks and 11 weeks, the brains are functioning and possibly even dreaming from what we can see and understand now scientifically. All major organs are functioning. The heart is pumping. The liver is making blood cells. The kidneys are clearing fluids. The child will suck their thumb. He or she will respond to sound and recoil from pain. These are things we know to be true. We've seen it happen over and over and over and over again. Not just in some kind of plant-type way of recoiling from something. But like any other human being, because it is a human being. And even though that's what happens between 8 and 11 weeks, statistically speaking, the average age of an unborn child that is aborted, is murdered, is 11 weeks. After all those things. Not that it takes all those things to have life. Life begins at conception. Let's remember how that happened. Psalm 139, 13 and on. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes, Lord, saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That's because our Father loves all children, just as we should. Some object, they say, it's my body. I can do what I want. No, it's not. It's a baby attached to your body. Maybe that's inside your body, but it's not your body. It's the Lord's body. And even your body, my body, is the Lord's body. 
We are not our own. We didn't create ourselves. We don't have sovereign ownership of ourselves. If God created us, then we are his to do what he wishes. Not to do what we wish with ourselves or with anything within us, especially if it's another life, another being. It's not our call. We've been created for a purpose by God. We've been created and then bought by God. If you're in Christ, you know this, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You may say, I'm not a Christian, so God doesn't own me. No, God made us. He owns us. And even if you refuse to follow him and believe in Christ for salvation, he still owns you and he will be there forever with you. If not in mercy and salvation, then in wrath and hell for eternity because he owns all of us. We are not our own to do what we want with ourselves. And anything we do that goes against him is to go against the created order, which is to spit in his face, and we will incur the wrath of God if it is not for the grace of Jesus being found in repentance and belief in Jesus as Savior. Some object, it's my right. I have a right to do this in the United States of America and other countries. And I would say the United States Supreme Court tells you you have that right But the supreme judge of the universe who supersedes the U.S. Supreme Court, who created all of us and all man-made courts, he says no one has the right to murder, especially a child. Exodus 20, 13, Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. That word in the Hebrew for murder doesn't mean kill. It means murder. And the idea, the difference between those two words is to murder means to take a life that does not deserve it or is not allowed to be taken. Leviticus 18.21 gives us clarity. It says, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech. That's a false god, a demon. And so profane the name of your God. He says, I am the Lord. That's his reason. Because I said so. That's why. Right, parents? Deuteronomy 12, 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Deuteronomy 18. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer. This is none. No sacrifice of children. And yet our nation, and hear me right, brothers and sisters, this is not a message that is political in nature today. I am not talking politics. I'm talking morality and spirituality. I'm talking about the worship of God or demons. I'm not talking about a political party or stance. So do not hear me wrong when I say these words. Our nation has given itself over to follow the likes of women like Margaret Sanger and men who are the same who basically want to do what we talked about last week. They want to be supreme and make decisions over who gets what and who has life and who doesn't. And it is abhorrent to the Lord. It is unholy and ungodly. Many follow Margaret Sanger not even knowing what she said. Why is this on the heels of a sermon that deals with racism? Because they're tied together. Anytime there's a supremacy issue, it's not just in one area. Let me give you some quotes from Margaret Sanger, who's known as the the mother of Planned Parenthood. 
In the book, The Woman and the New Race, in chapter 5, which is entitled, listen to the title of the chapter, The Wickedness of Creating Large Families. She says, The most merciful thing that the large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. There's no other words except ungodly. Here's a larger one in her book, The Pivot of Civilization. She says this. You've got to hang on with this one now, okay? The lack of balance, she says, between the birth rate of the unfit and the fit. There's the supremacy. You see it? The lack of balance between the birth rate of the unfit and the fit. Admittedly, the greatest present menace to the civilization. That's what she says is the greatest menace in civilization is the lack of balance in the birth rates between what she calls the unfit and the fit. She says it can never be rectified by the inauguration of a cradle competition between these two classes. In other words, you can't race to the end so you have the most kids. She says the example of the inferior classes, i.e. the fertility of the feeble-minded, the mentally defective, the poverty-stricken, should not be held up for emulation to the mentally and physically fit and therefore less fertile parents of the educated and well-to-do classes. In other words, those poor other ethnics besides white people, which she gets into in other books when she goes before the Ku Klux Klan and, and gets them to follow her as well. She's saying that those folks that are disabled should never be compared to those who are more fit, who therefore will be less fertile. We've got to stop the problem now, right? That's what she's saying. Is therefore, on the contrary, the most urgent problem today is how to limit and discourage the over-fertility of the mentally and physically defective. She then goes on and says things that on their own have been taken on in high flag by many people in our community, in our world. She says, no woman can call herself free who does not control her own body. I would even agree with that statement. But what she intends with that and in context is that she must then have the right to murder a child if she so wishes within her womb. She says every woman should be absolute mistress of her own body. And these are lies straight from the enemy. Satan, who's a murderer himself. John 8, 44, Jesus calls him that when he's talking to the Pharisees. And he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. And it is easy, brothers and sisters, for us to hear all these things and be in agreement and hate the murder of children and then to look at people who do this and to speak down to them and to preach at them from a condescending way. And I'm here to tell you today, brothers and sisters, that we cannot. While God has that right, we do not to speak that way to them. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, the greedy, or drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let me go back and break that down a little more for us. Read that again. Let's put that in context. Remember, Jesus says, if you lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Remember that? If you've ever lusted in your heart for someone sexually, you're in this list. Because if you ever hate someone, if you hate someone, you, you, you've already murdered them in your heart. That's the way Jesus kind of portrays that, right? So in other words, you may not be a murderer physically, but you've murdered people in your heart. Or if you covet someone else's things, you might as well have stolen from them. 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, or the greedy, or drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, he says to the church at Corinth. Now we go, well, of course he did, because that's the church gone wild over there, right? But I say, brothers and sisters, such were some of us. Remember, we're the weak ones. We're the foolish ones. We're the ones who are nothing. And such was I. This has been my story. Many of you know this story already. I won't delve too far into it except to just tell the points of truth that need to be told to say that I am such one. That when I was in college, I got a girl pregnant and convinced her to have an abortion. Come to find out later, it was two children that we aborted that I convinced her to abort, to murder. So I'm a murderer. And God has brought conviction upon my heart and soul, especially in the moments of my salvation. And I have repented of my sin, but I never will be over my sin. And I struggle often, as many do, I'm sure, who come to faith later or even already Christians that make that decision to, to take the life of a child. But I have good news. In 1 Corinthians 6, 11 there, he says, and such were some of you. Talking to Christians. He says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Today I tell you that no matter what you've done, no matter how horrible it is, no matter how much you burden yourself with the weight of that sin, even after God has forgiven you in Christ, you have been washed in the blood of Jesus. And today you can find forgiveness for your sins. Today you can find healing for your hurting. Today you can find your brokenness knitted back together by the one who knitted you originally and will put you back together as a new creation in Christ Jesus if you put your hope in him. And so when we talk to people who have gone through these things, it's easy to see them with disdain. It's easy to see them with eyes of, of hatred even, righteous indignation. And you're not wrong to be righteously indignant towards them, but I'm here to tell you that our job is to be ministers of reconciliation. That means we have to be ambassadors. We don't wait for people to come to us. We go on behalf of the king. Such were some of you. You may not have murdered a child, but you're an adulterer. You may not have stolen somebody's bike or car or wife, but you have coveted their things or people in your heart, so you therefore are a thief, an idolater. But you can be washed. You can be healed. The scriptures say in Psalm 103, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great, there's these words again, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, even those who might have taken the life of their own child. John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're told in Acts that we need to repent, therefore, and turn back 
that your sins may be blotted out, the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Today, if you're in this place, if you're hearing the gospel, if you're believing on Jesus and the Lord is present with you and times of refreshment can come if you just trust in the Lord. Be like that centurion that said, I, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. For I've spent many a days, many a nights crying out to the Lord, carrying the burden for my sin. But never once did I have to be told really it had to be taken off of me again because he took it off of us in the moment of our salvation and he died for it on the cross and he bore that sin on that cross in our place so that we could be redeemed because he would die the death we deserve he would endure the wrath that only we should endure so the righteous one of God became our righteousness so you can be washed in the blood of Jesus you can be sanctified and made holy you can be made justified declared right because the righteous one Jesus died in your place so that you could be clothed in his righteousness so that when God sees you he sees the beauty of Jesus and not the filthiness of your sin praise the Lord this is good news good news for the healing of the hurting good news for the knitting together of the broken Good news for the binding up of the bruised. Good news for bringing holistic redemption to those who feel like they are beyond hope. Hope for the hopeless in Jesus. The psalmist starts off, Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. For He is good and His steadfast love endures forever. But here's where we as Christians often will err in our response to this. We will make the mistake of saying, hey, but it's not my place to tell someone what they should or shouldn't do or what they can or cannot do. Brothers and sisters, it is exactly our responsibility to tell everyone what they should do. That's the demand of the gospel. We are ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation, not to bring heaping judgment, but to bring the grace of the gospel for reconciliation to the Father. That is exactly what we're supposed to do. So let us not say it's not my place. The right answer is, what can I do? And now that you're thinking about that, I'm going to give you three things you can do. They're easy. Don't even write them down. They're easy. The first one is pray. Pray. I'm going to pray like this psalmist prays. We'll see it in a few minutes in the end. I want you to pray for the babies that are being murdered every day. 42 million a year in the world. I cannot fathom. Pray that God would stop it. He is sovereign and all-powerful. He can stop it right now if he wanted to do so and he was willing to do so. I don't know why he waits to do so. But he often chooses to work through the prayers of his saints. So brothers and sisters, let us pray for the stopping of the murder. Let us pray for the stopping of infanticide throughout this nation and world. Let us pray for those who have already committed this treacherous act. Let us pray for their souls. Pray for their healing. Pray for their restoration. Pray for their reconciliation to their Father. Pray for their burden of sin to be removed. Let us pray for them. Let us pray for the the fathers and the mothers. Let us pray for the grandparents. Let us pray for the siblings of those unborn children who have to wonder why they can never meet their brother or sister. Let us pray for the nieces who will maybe hear about it one day and look differently upon them 
who did that thing. Let us pray for all involved. Let us love. That's the second thing. Let us love. Love is an action. Not a decision. It's an action. Let us love. Love women. Love babies. Love fathers. This is the hardest for me. Love even those who do the procedures. Let us try to love them with the grace of the gospel. Let us disciple men and women and lead them to the true hope that's in Jesus so that they never have to think about doing these things or so that they find healing from doing these things. I wonder when the last time it was that somebody went to someone who performs abortions and said, hey, can I meet with you every week to encourage you and to pray for you? I don't know if I can do it. But I bet Jesus can do it in us. What if we confess our own sins in that environment? What if we confess our own struggles and show how we have a Savior that's loved us even though we've done wrong? You can love people also by volunteering at the Pregnancy Crisis Center here in town. You don't have to even go in the doors. You can drop off a package to tell the people there you love them. You can pray for them. You can email them. You can send a gift financially. You can drop off a baby bed. You can become a counselor for the men or the women there. Pray and love and thirdly, fight. You may not realize this, but when you became a Christian, you were called to war. And I don't know what's war besides saving the innocent. It's not just a spiritual war. It is spiritual. We fight against not flesh and blood, but against principalities and princes of the air and darkness. But the real effects are physical effects too. And there are millions of children who need us to fight. And there are millions of people that are murdering those children who need us to fight for their salvation. We're called to war. We're called to fight. Psalm 82 says this, pleading with God, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And brothers and sisters, those prayers go up to the Father, but He often and most of the time does His answering of prayers through other men and women like us. We need to fight ignorance and share with people what's really happening when somebody goes to have an abortion. We need to fight to talk about these things in places even when it's uncomfortable. I'm not saying you gotta get on the side of the road and hold up signs of aborted fetuses. I'm not saying that. You can do that. Some people think that works. I don't know. But at least they're doing something. You can talk at work with your friends. You can counsel people that are struggling. You can call people that you know have gone through this and love on them with the gospel of Jesus. That's fighting for their souls. You can fight, you can fight, you can fight. And here's another fight. Again, this is not political, this is moral. But you can fight government-approved infanticide by calling and writing your congressman or congresswoman. You can vote on things to make this change in our own state. You can march to show people that this has got to stop. And maybe even you're one of those folks that feels like God is going to put on you to go stand 
between people so they have to pass you as you give them grace of Jesus when they're on their way to seeing a doctor to have this done. Did you know that in many states, you don't even have to have your parents' permission to have an abortion? If you talk to a doctor on your own, they will give you an abortion without your parents' permission. You'll never even know as a parent. Did you know they don't have to report that to the government when they do that? Did you know there's places around the world right now that are celebrating the fact that they are having almost zero children born with Down syndrome? Not even because of genetic changing, but because they are doing prenatal testing and they're murdering the children that would have Down syndrome before they're ever born? Who do we think we are that we can represent God's glory more than someone that has Down syndrome? I don't know about your experience, but I've seen the glory of God more in those called disabled in my lifetime than I ever have seen it in myself. We do not have any right to think we are greater than another, but we do have a right in the Lord to pursue the saving of children for the sake of His glorious fame. Not only a right, but a responsibility. And you may think, gosh, this is, maybe this is good stuff even, or maybe this is stuff that like, I get you, I've heard this a million times before, but what's this got to do with Jesus today? I thought you were going to preach about Jesus. I thought you were going to give us Jesus. I mean, the back of this pulpit says, sir, we would see Jesus, right? How does this tie into Jesus? I'm glad you asked the question. Do you realize that of all the people I, I can read about in the Bible, Jesus was the perfect candidate for an abortion? A baby conceived outside of marriage? Endangering the life of the mother? She should have been killed because she was pregnant out of wedlock. Disgracing the family? A father who didn't want him? The perfect candidate for a child to be murdered. But instead... Jesus was loved, protected, and born into this world to become our self-sacrificing Savior who was sacrificed not as a child pointlessly to demons, but sacrificed on the altar of God's grace and mercy in order to save us so he could adopt us into his family as his children. He who should destroy us for our sins Instead, gives us grace and mercy by giving us His one and only Son, who alone deserves glorious celebration. Instead, He died for us. So let us do like this psalm says, and praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Forever. And even after they did all these things, sacrificing their children. Listen to what happens here in verse 44. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. He's still listening for his people. And he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant. Hallelujah. He remembers. He cannot forget his covenant with us, brothers and sisters. He will remember his covenant every time. He remembered his covenant and he relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Not because they ever deserved it, not because they could ever outdo it, not because they could ever get over it, but out of the abundance of his steadfast love, he relented from bringing wrath 
And instead, he brought his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. So with this psalmist, I cry out in verse 47, Save us, O Lord. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. He alone deserves the glory. He alone can stop the murder. He alone can save the murderers. He alone is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And I'm going to call us to action right now. What if we could do one thing starting right now that could change everything in this county for children that are being murdered every year? What if, what if we could do something right now that might roll into changing the world around us simply because we took action right now? And you may think, what can I do right now that can make that big of a change? I'll tell you what it is. We can pray. Prayer is what brought sweeping revival across nations. It wasn't because people got holy all of a sudden on their own. They sought the face of the Lord and cried out for change, for him to bring his glory to earth, to manifest himself and change lives. And he showed up in magnanimous ways throughout our history. And he loved so much after hearing cry after cry after cry for salvation that he sent his only son for us. And if he'll do that, he can stop this stuff. If he can take all of us spiritually dead people and make us alive, he can bring healing to the hurting murderers. He can bring hope to the hopeless. He can bring salvation to the lost. And he can bring salvation to the murdered children in our lands. He can do that. But if we will not cry out to him, why would he pity us? If we will not cry out to him, what does he have to hear from us? This is our responsibility. And I beg you today to begin every day praying for the lost, praying for the hurting and the broken, and praying for the children who will never see our face this side of heaven, but who will celebrate the King as we pray to him for this salvation. I'm going to pray right now, and as I begin praying, we'll have some music. And in that time, I want you to pray. We're going to have some silence except for the music. It's your turn to begin the movement of prayer, seeking the Lord for these things. If you feel so moved, this altar of grace and makeshift steps can be your place, or it can be in your seat, or it can be on your face or on your knees. It doesn't matter the place. What matters is the posture of your heart before the Lord. I will lead us in prayer. We'll give you time to pray on your own until we begin singing. Father, we need you. We need you to work in our hearts, to change our lives, to make us yearn for your glory. We need you to save these babies that we cannot save. We need you to save the souls of the doctors and nurses and assistants and office workers who participate in these things atrocities to your glory. Would you save those who are stepping out to go to, to murder their child? And I use that word not to be rude or mean, but to say this is the truth. And to save those who have already done so like you've saved me, Lord. For you alone can save us. And for those of us who think we are beyond these things, Lord, we need saving all the same. 
And today we rely on your salvation. We rely on your grace. We rely on your spirit every moment of every day, just like the first day we met you as you saved us in Jesus. So Lord, lead us now in prayers for the lost. Lead us in prayers for the hurting. Lead us in prayers to you as we lift up your name for the sake of these children and even for the doctors that do these things. We come to you now in the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet, and we pray that this sermon helped you to be more like Jesus as 12th Street seeks to be a place where we can find forgiveness for the past and hope for the future.